What is a soup to onion? Okay, I like to think of this as the creme brulee of soup because you've got this beautiful crust of cheese on top, like a creme brulee that you want to break into and the layers of flavor. Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that brings you, the wonderful and fabulous people, of course, that are involved in French food. Here in France or around the world, they cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it, but above all, they all love it. This week's episode is all about the soup d'oignon, or as we like to say, onion soup. Too many, it's a classic and often the first thing that people want to try when they arrive here in France. It's a dish that if you take your time to get the flavour right, can be an eating experience you'll never forget. But as is the case with many well-known dishes, if you happen to get a bad version, well, you're scarred for life. To chat to us today on Fabulously Delicious, we have someone who not only knows all about the dish's history, recipe and tips on how to make them, but is also a wonderful foodie and professional food photographer who hopefully will be able to give us a few tips on how to photograph the dish as well. Brace yourself though, because after I appeared on Beffler's podcast, Food Adventures, I realised that Beth and I just might be a sister from another mister, as they say. Beth Fuller, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Oh my God, <laughs> thank you for having me. And we totally are sisters from another misters. It's Oh, brothers from another mother. We are we are connected. I do love the way that you just gave yourself a round of applause. Listeners, oh. everybody give Beth a round of applause. This is a serious podcast fest, so let's get serious. Let's just, okay. you know, focus. Focus. As the French say, fuck us. Fuck us. Fuck us. Uh, your heritage, so that people can get to know you before we talk about all things soup onion. Your mum's family, they were from Italy and your dad's was Hungarian. So I want to know, what's Hungarian food like? Well, that's a really good question. So my dad is from, he was born in Hungary and he left in 56 during the revolution. And like, they left like underground railroad style in the middle of the night, left everything. Their families traveled through the wooded areas they almost got shot. Like they had these trip lines that were hidden in the forests and they had snipers. Well, not, they weren't snipers, but they were sharpshooters up in the trees. And my dad tripped a cord and a bell went off and it was by sheer luck that they didn't get killed. Um, and then he immigrated from there. They found a safe house in England. And then from England, they got sponsored to come here in the U S but um, Hungarian food, you know, my, I didn't grow up around my grandparents. They're in, Hung in Hungarian, we called them my nudge mama and nudge papa. And your nudge papa, my nudge papa, mm -hmm. <laughs> and my it. nudge mama. And Wait. like they, the, the only things I knew were like chicken paprikash, um, the stews, some of the really rich desserts. But my dad didn't, he was so young when they came over, so he didn't embrace the culinary traditions. And you know, the, it, the internet wasn't there when growing up. And so you had either the, you know, $500 encyclopedia set that was 20 years too old. So there's only so many things you can look up and the recipes just weren't the library didn't have a lot of Hungarian cookbooks. Shocking. I, I know. You've explored Hungarian food in some manner. Yeah. Is yeah. there any similarities say with Hungarian food and French food? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, 
you know, chicken paprikash is a stewed chicken. I, I think, you know what it really boils down to, honestly, pun intended, is that a lot of the dishes that, and the one we're talking about today even, are really, they come from the, what the peasants ate. They come from this tradition of people couldn't afford X, Y, and Z, so they cooked the hell out of something in order to make a meal and stretch it. And that's kind of what, like, for example, chicken paprikash, it's a stewed down chicken dish that has these this now more umptious sauce because sour cream might be added to it or something like that. And then these beautiful little dumplings that are made from flour that usually they're light and a little pillowy, but they're small and they're they're like noodly, dumplingy, sort of spetzly kind of vibe. So it's like if you took some German traditions, some French traditions, and kind of mushed it all up with some Eastern European vibe to it. You get Hungarian food, but I think it also is who conquered who back in the day, who colonized who back in the day. And that's where you're seeing a lot of influences. I think in Europe, honestly, the countries are so small that they're smaller than some of the states here in the U.S. Like if you guys don't know, I'm obviously I'm from, you know, the U.S. Really? And I so, thought you were Canadian. I know, but <laughs> by my accent. And so... You know, when you go over to Europe, you can literally drive from France to Germany to Italy in in and around within a day or two if you wanted to, like if you were going nonstop. But why would you? I mean, well, no, I I go to I go to Germany all the time for the bread and the beer. Like I just pop over to get some bread and beer, and then I drive back. It's only six hours. It's fine. Right. I mean, who doesn't want a German sausage once in a while? Get a nice big broth. Let's move right on from that. Yes, we all love a good German sausage. But ladies and gentlemen, this is a very clean podcast and I'm not going to let Beth pull me down, okay, Um, from the classy episodes that I have brought to you before this. Um, You grew up in New Hampshire. Is there a large Hungarian or even Italian community in New Hampshire? What's New Hampshire like? No, I mean, Italian, maybe. The town I grew up in was uh, one of the larger, more metropolitan, dare we say, towns called Nashua. It's on the border of New Hampshire and Massachusetts, so a lot of people would commute into Boston to work. But oddly enough, New Hampshire, because, and we can tie in France with this, the province of Canada that's right above New Hampshire is Quebec, which is a French Canadian province. It's the, it is the only French Canadian province. So it's, it's you know, their first language is French, well, Canadian French. And it is rooted, there's a lot of French influence that you see in the food, the the people, the the vibe of it. And so because of that, there's a lot of people that migrated down back in the day, you know, maybe 400 years ago. I don't know. Maybe it was Tuesday. I don't know. <laughs> and they came down and, col- you know, started colonizing, you know, during the French and Indian War and things like that, that you see people that have Quebec and Canadian heritage. And so there was a lot of French Canadians that I grew up in and around. Oh. Okay. I know. Who cooked at home when you were growing up? Was it mum or dad? Uh, both of them, oddly enough. And they, so this is a wicked fun, fun fact that before I was born, they decided in the 70s, they were living, my mom and dad both grew up in Pennsylvania. My mom lives in, grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is north. And my dad grew up in Pittsburgh, which is, you know, southern, middle southern Pennsylvania. And so 
when they just got married, they met at NASA in Washington, D.C. They're wicked smart. And when they got married, they moved back to Erie, to where my grandparents lived, you know, the Italian family vibe for a minute. And they decided to open a Mexican restaurant. And so I know. And this was like 1970 something. So let's say like 72. And they decided we're going to open a Mexican restaurant sandwiched between a tattoo parlor and a porn shop. You know, classic. Classic. So you can imagine their clientele that came in. It was Bubba's Tattoo Shop. I'm not kidding. And Bubba had a very large appetite for tacos. And so they just, the two of them together, did it survive? No. No, it didn't even make it a year. Oh, not even with Bubba's purchases? They microwaved a lot of things. They're not culinary geniuses, but they loved experimenting with food and like, We grew up no cable. We had the black and white little TV with the dials on it. And so our public access channel was PBS. And we would watch Julia Child, um, Jacques Pepin, uh, the Galloping Gourmet, who was always drunk on the show. Um, And then Yan from Yan Can Cook. And so I was influenced with my parents constantly watching those shows And then I watched those shows and then my parents would try to recreate some of those meals. But food, I grew up, so I'm 41. So I was born in 1980. Food just wasn't as important or the stature of that it is now, I think then, you know, so it just wasn't, it just wasn't, it wasn't what it is now in a way, you know, so you, your parents, I feel like had a like set of core dishes that they would make over and over and over again because they were exhausted from the day. They had fatigue of just making decisions all day long, trying to keep us all alive. And now they're like, okay, here's pasta visual. It's Friday. We're not going to eat meat because they grew up Catholic and I, they tried to raise me Catholic didn't work out so well. (laughs) And uh, then, you know, you didn't eat meat on Fridays. And so like my mom would make pasta visual every single Friday Growing up, that's just what we had. Apologise before if you saw me waving, um, listeners. You can't see that we're actually seeing each other. Yeah. Um, but I was waving um, while Beth was talking before because my golden retriever farted. Um, but yeah. moving yeah, right that's along, what I thought I literally <laughs> thought that's what it was, and I was like, I know he's not telling me to like cut it short. I was like, I really think probably yeah, one of farted. the goldens mm. tooted, and he's just like, no. Yes, thanks for that, Lenny. I like to say that it's not an apple a day that keeps the doctor away, but here in France it's a croissant. So that's how much I love them. How did you get into this love of French food? Oh, God. Croissant, croissant. Oh, my God. Mm, Maybe I know. Is... You had me at croissant. Oh, it is. There is nothing better than a really well-done croissant, especially here in the U.S., because you want to find somebody who has some sort of origin story that's from France that is making this. And it's it, you need the butter. You need the lamination. You need the layers. There is there's nothing better. I, I Like I said, Julia Child was my first introduction to French food back in the day. PBS, watching her and dancing a chicken across the, the TV screen. And then Dan Aykroyd on um, Saturday Night Live, who played Julia Child very well in a comedic... No, I'm just kidding. But... <laughs> Really, that that's when I started falling in love with French food, and I just wanted to try it because it seems so fancy and exotic. Because 
There was no French restaurants in the town I grew up in. There was no in food when we we probably went out to eat when growing up as a kid, maybe four or five times a year. It just wasn't what you do did. Like you couldn't afford it. it, it and when you did, my parents would never take us to a French restaurant. Like they, I mean, there you drive an hour to even find one, and it was so expensive. And like, I mean, back then it was air quotes, stuffy and snooty and like white tablecloths. And you don't take children to that. So maybe it was just this unattainable dream that I was like, oh my God, I want all the butter. I want, I, I, I want it all. You know, Belle from Beauty and the Beast. I- <laughs> so apart from croissants and the dish that we're going to talk about later on, the uh, onion soup, the soup d'oignon. Yeah. My actually, my French pronunciation of onion is getting better and better as the episode. Way better than mine. Apart from those dishes, what else do you love to cook that's French food? God, there. I mean, it's funny. There's so many things that I feel like are French without even trying. That I don't even realize are French that I cook. I mean, I make a quiche. Oh, probably once a week, if not every other week. And a quiche to me is just heaven. I can eat it for breakfast, lunch, dinner. Like if I'm at brunch and there's a quiche involved, hell yeah. Croque madame, shut the front door. Is there anything better than a jammy egg on top of a gorgeous, gorgeous croque monsieur? Nothing, nothing. The the madame takes it next level. I mean, you put a jammy egg on anything, I'm going to eat it. It's my, it's my vibe. A cassoulet, a beautifully time-honored cassoulet. Oh, and I'm talking a lot of winter things right now because we're recording. It's freezing cold outside. It is the dead of January when you and I are talking right now. And so that's all I can think about are warm, cozy things. Like I'm obsessed with madeleines. I bought a madeleine pan. I And the thing with a madeleine is you need the time to rest that batter. Like you need, it needs at least an hour, if not longer, to rest in the fridge. Yes, but it's supposed to be something that you make for after dinner. So the idea is that you make it before the people come. Yeah. So it's sort of the last thing in your dinner party prep that you do. And then you just whip it out. Then it's just sat in there whilst you're having your dinner party. And then you whip it out and make these madeleines. That's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be this sort of treat that you've given somebody at the end of a meal when they're having their coffee and their tea or whatever it is. There's just, there's, I love the simplicity of French food. I also love the extravagance of it in terms of caloric intake that you're having while eating some of these French dishes. Because again, I grew up in the 80s. And so in the 80s, everything was non-fat. Everything was labeled like fat was bad. And, And as you, that gets ingrained in your head. So you look at people in Paris who are eating all of this stuff and God knows how much butter they consume. And you think, what the hell? Why can't I do that? I'm gonna need Lipitor if I eat like that. And The truth is they live a very active lifestyle. You eat very high quality products and you eat small amounts of them. It's not like you gorge yourself on this. Same thing in Italy. You don't just, you don't gorge yourself on pasta every day. You, You might eat it a few times a week or maybe you do eat it every day, but you eat it at lunch as part of a huge long meal that you're eating a small portion of it. And so- I mean, God, I could go on and on about French food. There's nothing in the apple tart tatan. I mean, really, there is nothing I don't love about French food. Great. And Juliet? 
Uh, no, that that I don't. I'm not a huge <laughs> See, fan. yeah, so, done. Thought I'd get you. I'm not, Everybody gets done on the edge of it. No, I'm not a huge fan of awful. Like sweetbreads, I love sweetbreads. When done properly and fried beautifully and they're crispy and umptious, uh, my God, foie gras. Ooh, ooh, a terrine of foie gras. Oh, my God. Smear it on a beautiful crostini. Oh my god! Oh my god! I just can't even. But yeah, no, that sausage. No. I want to talk about food photography because it's your grown-up job. Is that right? You're a food photographer. I am. I am. I specialize in commercial and editorial photography. So I, um, yeah, I do a little bit of everything, and it, it's there's nothing I love more than picking up a camera and shooting food. Food is difficult and finicky and those actors i call them actors like ice cream melts like a son of a gun she does not like the camera she does not like a hot light she needs to be in and out of that scene as quick as possible or it's just a melty disaster but yeah i i've always been a photographer and um i just kind of tabled it because as i said my parents went they met at nasa so arts in my family was more of a um, hobby than it was a career path. And not that they pushed me either way, but I just chose a different career path. But that career path led me back to photography. But I've always been involved in food in some way. So how did you become a photographer? Mm. Well, the pandemic really pushed me to make that change. So I did event sales for a long, long time. And um with that background of being in sales, being able to talk to anyone, I love working with companies, the proposal process, I can go on and on about it. But when the pandemic happened, events stopped and I lost my job. And so I decided, well, it's now or never. Like, let's take the leap. So I picked up my camera again. And uh, yeah, here we are. Now, almost two years later, I started my own business. It's thriving. I have a ton of clients. I am happier than I've ever been. I work nonstop, but in the best way possible. What's the differences between food photography and, say, travel or landscape photography? Oh, God, there's so many. So with landscape photography and travel photography, it, it really, photography in general, you're capturing a moment and creating a, a mood or you're invoking something when someone looks at the picture. And so when you're traveling, what you want to feel is the vibe of that place, that hotel, that, that experience that you're out in the world, you're seeing a beautiful vista, you're watching the sunset. And so you're using different lenses. You have to have a different idea of how to deal with the natural light and, and, you know, nature and, weather and wind and, and all of that. And with food, it's much different because the sets are much smaller. There's a lot more manipulation of the dishes, but then there's also a lot of pressure from clients saying, I want a very specific look. So you deal with trying to evoke a feeling like you want someone to look at your food and, and, and want to eat it. And how do you appeal to a huge audience of having them want to take a bite of that cake or whatever it might be? Um, so you're you're using and is it naturally lit? Is it 
studio lighting? Is it, there's so many props and surfaces and um, there there can be pun intended, a lot of cooks in the kitchen that help (laughs) make that photo come together. And with a lot of people involved in something, it can get overcomplicated. It can turn out even more beautiful than you imagined, or it can be a total disaster. So how do you get inspiration for what you photograph? What comes first? Is it the chicken or the egg? So is it the dish or the idea of the photo? So it's a little bit of both. And what's funny with me, that's funny you say that, is that I say somebody like I'm shooting this week for a pickle company. And so I have a handful of shots that we're doing. I've mapped them all out. And it takes me about a week or so usually to be able to visually see the actual shot ahead of time in my head. But once I can see the layout of the photo, I can see the props, I can see it all. And I can, it, I literally can pull it from my my brain and, and see it. But that takes looking at other people's photography. It takes looking through, it takes sometimes just a walk in the woods and getting inspired by something that has absolutely nothing to do with food. Because, and I look through art books, coffee table books. I mean, you name it. Because a lot of times if you're shooting, say, a burger with a pickle on it, there's only so many burger pictures with a pickle on it that you want to look at. But like, what's the mood you're trying to evoke? Is it, are you trying to, right now it's the dead of winter. Am I trying to make it look like summer? I can do that. But like, is that the vibe we're going for? Like it's, there's a lot of emotion and just things. So once you drill down on, okay, say it's summer, are we by a pool? Okay, we're by a pool. What does that look like in my head? And then just picking little pieces out of looking at summertime pool scenes, looking at where's the hard lighting direction? How's the shadow looking? I mean, I can go on and on and on. Are there dishes or cuisines that are easier to photograph? No, 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 no. The hardest stuff, though, I can tell you. Well, okay, let me back that party train up. So anything that's vibrant with colors, reds, greens, Anything that pops is is great to photograph. Things that are greasy can be a little difficult, especially if you've got to move things around on the set, then you get these puddles of grease. The other thing that's really hard to photograph are browns. Browns, blacks, whites, anything that's like monochromatic, especially in the brown, black, and white tonal family can be really challenging to look delicious, fabulously delicious, dare we say. (laughs) You see amazing food, like photos that I've heard, aren't edible. So like, is that a thing? Like I've heard this before that food stylists will do things to photos. Yeah, like motor oil instead of pancake syrup. So what's that about? So it depends what you're shooting. Like I, I only use real food when I'm styling, but I'll be honest with you, if you're shooting, for example, of, and there's rule, there's very specific rules here in the U.S. and it could be a worldwide thing. But if you're shooting for a pancake company, you're not shooting for the syrup company, then technically you can use something else in place of the syrup. But the product you're shooting for cannot be, it needs to be the genuine product that you're shooting. So if you're shooting for an ice cream company, you cannot use mashed potatoes or frosting or something like that, you have to use the real ice cream in the shot because that's that would be then misleading to the viewer to look at it. Um, 
So it, yeah. So it depends on that. Like, say you're doing a cookbook shoot and it's not necessarily a product that you're shooting. You're just shooting a dish. Like you decided you wanted to write all these recipes and you wanted an incredible photographer to shoot it like myself. And then I go there, then we can manipulate it in certain ways, but I still don't use fake food. Like if anything, I might like, for example, when I shoot, uh, chicken thighs, bone in, skin on, crispy chicken thighs, I will reserve all of the fat that came off of them and gently brush that on top as I'm going through the shot. So it gleams and glistens beautifully rather than using, there's a certain mix of glycerin and water, vegetable glycerin and water you can use to create more of a, a shine or a sheen that'll stay a little longer. A lot of people use that to make uh, droplets of water stick on surfaces a little bit better too. You're listening to Fabulous and Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways that you can do this. The first, possibly the most important, is to follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review and a rating. A five-star one, well, that would be fabulous, especially if you're listening on Apple or Spotify. Share Fabulously Delicious around with your friends, family, co-workers or anyone that you know loves French food or just food in general. Are you a Patreon member? Well, if you can support Fabulously Delicious by becoming one, for as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you will receive exclusive crave content just for you. You can find out more through the link in the show notes of this episode. On to today's topic, the soup to onion. Many people will know it and by the name could pretty much give it away what it's what it is but for those that don't what is a soup to onion okay i like to think of this as the creme brulee of soup because really like here in the u.s it it and i'm pretty sure it's like this throughout france as well correct me if i'm wrong my darling but you've got this beautiful crust of cheese on top like a creme brulee that you want to break into and the layers of flavor. And this soup, though simple, is all about texture. So it is a brothy onion caramelizy soup with croutons or bread of some kind that have been toasted, which we will get into in a second. And then it's got a cheesy layer on top, which should be brulee or popped in your broiler or, or crisped up because it's this soup is all about comfort and texture and you want those different textures going on because without them it's a soggy disaster is it an old dish yeah oh yeah it goes way 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 back like yesterday way back no it goes like roman times or something i heard yeah i heard that i read though i want to say it was even a little further than that, and they said that it start. There's rumors of where it started, whether it was Lyon or Paris. And if you go with the Paris story, then it was King. I'm going to go with Louis. I feel like there was a lot of them. Yes, Louis the Fifteenth. I was going to ask you about him. He had a fancy version. Yeah, he did, and it was like, yeah, but it was like he was hunting, and he came back from hunting, and there was only. Like first world problems, champagne and onion and butter or and bread or something in his cabinet. And he was like, yo, we got to make something to eat. Your your homeboy's hungry. And his people were like, all right, let's whip something up for him so our heads don't get chopped off. In Louis's defense, I will point out that like we would go, oh my God, why are you wasting that champagne 
on yeah. the the soup to onion. But possibly he did that because maybe the water wasn't that great at Versailles well, at the time. Yeah. You know, it might that. not have been the same filtered water that we're all drinking. So maybe it was safer for him to just crack open a bottle of wine, a bottle of champagne. Yeah. There's yeah. that, but we both know girl was bougie. Like girl was bougie, let's be honest. But then it just, so here's the other thing about the soup. It really depends where you get it from. Because back in the day, if you get it from Lyon, it's going to have a different base than Paris. So then what is the differences between this uh, onion soup from Paris to this onion soup in Lyon? Yeah. Okay. So Paris has a little more punch. So Paris, it's either like a chicken, a veggie, or a beef broth bouillon base with maybe a little back note of like a dry white wine or even a splash of cognac. But if you're having this in Lyon, the soup is more likely to have a water base and you're going to have port or Madeira in it. I just love the fact that you used the term back note. I have to record that and use that in the future. That was fabulous. Madeira, port or Madeira. I'm surprised by that. That's interesting for Leon. It does. It's it's very fancy. The yeah. Leon one, very and the, fancy. And then if you get it in Normandy, it might have cider in it. Um. Whoa, lovely. Well, this is the case for many dishes around France. So the Cocovan, I've mentioned this yeah. so many times before, that there are different versions for different regions. But what's the Society du Dinner de la Soupe d'Oignon? I have never heard. Tell me. Oh, tell my me. God. You've never heard of this. No, snaps to you. Tell me oh, everything. You've got to love the French, I think, because there are people that food can inspire them so much that they create a society about it. So the Society de Dinner de Soup d'Agnon was the first stages. There are a group of men that became, they call it the French Academy, and basically they're still around today. But they basically are there to protect the French language. It was only up until I think the, correct me if I'm wrong, somebody from the internet can send me a message about this um, and I will correct it later, not. Um, But I think it was only until maybe the 70s or 80s that women were involved in this society. Up until then, it was all men. So this is from the 1700s. And they were, after the revolution, they got together on a three-month basis. Every three months, they had a dinner uh, around onion soup. And these group of men that had this dinner every three months became the French Academy, which is this academy that um, that protects the French language. Now, if anything that I said there was not factual, please um, do let me know, let know. Um, <laughs> via the internet, via the commenting process. Can I give one more fun fact about the soup? Oh, yes, please do. That And I could be wrong with this. You correct me if I'm wrong. But in France slash most likely Paris, because I feel like Paris, you're partying a little harder. It's deemed as a hangover cure. That if you're going to have French onion soup at like, or soup d'oignon at um, 2 a.m., like this is going to make you feel a little bit better in the morning. It's you know, the New York's version, that's like in New York, you'd have pizza or falafel. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but I have, um, I do think that that makes sense. Is it 
traditionally a vegetarian dish because it's onion or is it made traditionally with the beef stock? So in the recipe I've always come to love, I never viewed it as a vegetarian dish. It's easily adapted to be vegetarian, but I also would imagine it depends on which region in France you're having it. Um, Because my view of it is much more stateside view of it. And here in the States, it's always beef broth, always beef stock. So um, you would know a little more than I would about that because I don't want to give false information to your listeners. Don't worry about that. I give false information to my listeners all, all the time. I mean, as far as they know. Okay, perfect. As far as they know, I look like Brad Pitt. I've you got do. a full head of hair. I've got Hell six yeah. pack abs. So no, no. I, I I think you are correct. I think it does depend on where you come from. But I think traditionally it is a beef broth. So yeah. Um, do you have a favorite recipe for soup to onion? Kind of. So I talked. It's funny. I was asking my husband for everyone who doesn't know Todd is an executive chef. He is a classically trained, certified executive chef. He's been to culinary school and he's also been into a different accreditation program. So homeboy knows what he's talking about. And um, he's also been to France many, 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 many times. So for my recipe, I mean... We won't get into the particulars about stock because I feel like you. we could talk all day about a good stock one way or another, whether it's beef, chicken, veggie, but use your listeners know what a good quality stock is because these ingredients really, though simple, if you use the right stuff and you take a little time, mwah, chef's kiss. So we've good stock. I'm going to go with beef on this one. You do you. And then I was asking my husband about the onions because I've always used here in the U.S. We have sweet Vidalia onions that come from Georgia, as well as a mix of white, yellow, straight up yellow or red onion. And he said, and I like to use a mix of all of them because, you know, your girl's a little wild and why not? Why not be wild? He was like, you know, if you can use a mix of them, that's good. You want something that's going to have a little bit of a higher acidity, but also sweetness to it. Because the whole point of the soup is to really take the time to caramelize these onions down in a really beautiful way. Because the color of the soup is coming more from the onions being caramelized than it is the color from the stock. Just so we're all on board with that. So whatever onions you want to use, you do you. But I like a nice little mixy doodle of, of a couple of different kinds. Like even throw in a shallot. Who cares? Like this is live your best onion soup life, my friends. Um, and then from there, like the other piece of this puzzle we really need to talk about is the cheese on top. Because do you guys put cheese? Well, is that okay if we put cheese on top? I know it's not traditional, but... Can we put the cheese on top? This is my world, so let's put the cheese on top. I'm still hung up on the fact that you said mix-a-doodle. Little mixy-doodle. <laughs> Little mixy-doodle Tinsky sauce is usually I've how never it, heard that before. That I need to put that in my, in my cookbook. I had a little mixy-doodle of onions. <laughs> mixy-doodle. Um, yeah. Yes. No, look, I'm okay with cheese on top. I think we've developed into this uh, dish as being the the crusty bread soaked on top that has cheese and is just all kinds of delicious. Okay, great. So before we get into the bread, let's talk about the cheese because oddly enough, when you look at recipes for this, the first cheese that's coming up 
is not French. She's Gruyere. And it's... That's Swiss. It's sort of the same thing. Cheese. So we've got, you know, the first one that comes up is Gruyere, which, as we both know, is not. It's not French. That's okay, though. That's okay. You do you. It's very common, and it's going to give a ton of flavor. The French equivalent, I feel like, to that, if we're sticking to a French vibe, would be Comté. Mm, I would go Emmental. So Emmental is sort of the French version of Gruyere. Comté is amazing cheese, and I think you're doing it a little bit of a disservice by grating it on the bread um, and then grilling it, whereas the Emmental, that's what it's for. Yeah. Can we do say. a mixie of the two? Because I like a mixie of oh, the two. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but when you come here to France, we're not putting Comté on your French <laughs> onion soup. Okay, so well, you, you can do that in America US, if you want. I'll make you no. a bougie French onion soup with a little Comté on that. Mm-hmm. And champagne. And champagne. So you can have the champagne Comté French onion soup. Daps all around. When you come here to France, we will actually drink the champagne with the Comté and then have the French And then have the soup. soup. Okay, perfect, yeah. perfect. And then the other key to this, once you, once we, you know, you, you put all your mise en place aside, you've got this all ready to go. Toast your bread, kids. Toast whatever bread you're putting on. Before you even put the cheese up in there, toast that bread. Whether it's cubes, whether it's slices, whatever it is, toast the bread. And the other thing we really didn't talk about is the vessel that this is served in. Because Yes, so what do you put it in? So you can put it in your, like, these are individual portions, right? Like, that you're going to create for your guests. So there's an actual crock that we all know and love that is that, like, ceramic um, brown. And so, you know, the lip on the crock actually makes a difference because it's going to help with the way the cheese and the bread kind of hold together on top. And you want that cheese to come over the side and create that, help create that crust on top when we're broiling it. Like it's all very smartly designed here. This wasn't just by coincidence that this all came together. Oh no, my friends, the French know. Yes, the French know. The French know. I know. You do. You do. I love you. So, okay, we've got all of our mise en place. We're ready to. We're ready to make this beautiful dish that once was a peasant dish and now is not. I'm a fan of putting some sort of booze in this. I'm not putting champagne in it, but I'm going to maybe do either a splash of. Depends what I have in my liquor cabinet for cordials. Like maybe it's a splash of a ten year old white port. Maybe it's a splash of a tawny. Maybe it's a splash of Madeira. Maybe it's a splash of sherry. Maybe if I have some dry white wine open. All four of those things are not French. No. So maybe we should go with cognac. Okay. Maybe if it's a, if I have cognac open, a little Louis mm. Trey, let's throw <laughs> some Louis Trey up in there at $400 a shot. Or, oh, you, know, you don't? Oh, okay. I'm not thinking the $400 shot co- I'm cognac. Kidding. I'm thinking the $5.99 euro cognac yeah, from right? the, the Leclerc. Yeah. No, or like, or if you've got like a dry white wine that's open. I love a, a good dry white that, wine. Right? Yeah. Who doesn't? Who mm. doesn't? Put a little splishy of that. I bet the Countess likes that too. And then get some fresh thyme, some bay leaves. We're good. We're good. Let's make this soup. Let's make this soup.
No, I am all for adding wine um, to the soup because I'm all for adding wine to anything. Um, because there's nothing, you know, once you've opened the bottle. Yeah. Then you need to continue the process. Um, yeah, use so it then you have a glass with whilst you're cooking, you know. It's, oh, it's yeah. Like, but responsibly, of course. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. No, no appendages need to be cut off in this process. No, 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 no. no maybe, maybe you cut all your onions first, and then you open the wine. How long are you cooking this for? Well, it depends how much time you got. So the onions take a minute. So the stock, say the stock's done. The onions are what's gonna take the most amount of time with this. Once you've sweat down your onions, depending on how long you, how you want this them thinly, thinly cut, you know? So I would say, I would plan for about a half an hour of slowly sweating them if you have the time. And maybe, maybe that's aggressive. It also depends on where you are in the world. So say you're listening to this and you're in the Swiss Alps. Well, your your heating process of cooking those onions down because of the altitude, it's going to take a little longer in the U.S. Yes. Well, then, because obviously, yes, because it does take longer to cook things in different places and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah, so I mean, um, for me, I know it takes about a half an hour, give or take, to sweat a certain amount of onions down, depending on how big of a batch I'm making. The stock's ready to go. You're throwing in a little flour, maybe adding a little extra butter to, to kind of coat the onions because you want this thickened up with snooch, right? And then that's when I throw in a little, oh, but sorry, let's back this party train up. Before we put the butter and the flour in, that's when I'm gonna put a splishy of booze in. So the onions are sweated down. Now let's put a splishy of our booze of choice. Maybe it's the cognac. Maybe you've polished off the two bottles of white wine. So now we're gonna open a third. What the hell, we're living dangerously. Splishy of that in, cook that, reduce it, make sure there's nothing left. Then let's add in a little butter. Let's add in some flour, coat that onions, cook the flour, because flour's raw, people. Can't eat raw flour. Nope, no, not, no, no ma'am, no, no madame. And then that's when we're gonna add in some aromatics. I would add in maybe some fresh thyme. I don't even take it off. I just throw the whole freaking, I almost swore, the whole, the whole twig in because it's gonna do its work, and then just pull it's it out actually, when you're done. It's actually a sprig. Yeah, of you're a time. sprig. Not, you're no, it is. It's technically <laughs> a sprig of time, not a twig of time. A sprig. <laughs> it's Monday, so we put in our sprig of time. I got nothing but time for you, babe. And then we throw in a bay leaf, fresh if you have it, because fresh bay leaves are where it's at. If you don't, no judgment. Throw in, throw in a dried. It's cool. And then we're gonna throw in our stock. Simmer, simmer, bubble, bubble, boil and trouble. It's going to be delicious. Little salt and pep. Taste it first. Adjust as you go. Your stock might be a little salty. The cheese is going to be a little salty. Nobody needs to die of cardiac arrest here. So, you know, if you need to ease up on your salt, now is a good time to check it. Then you're taking the soup. You're ladling it in your crock. You've toasted your bread. Now you have the choice. Is it a cube? Is it baguette slice? I don't know. It's your world. You do you. We love you. No judgment either way. No, look, I am judging people that would use cubes. Like I, I'm not quite there on a cube of bread. Yeah. yeah. I want to know. I need you to send me photos, send me links to people that have used cube of bread for their um, soup dungan. Okay, perfect. I will. And maybe I'll even do one for you that I will make. I will make it. 
and I will plate it and I will do a cube and take a picture of it and I will tag no. you. No. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> As a food photographer, I wanted to ask actually, when yeah. photographing, because we, we finished this recipe. Uh, yeah, okay, so then you're going to put the cheese oh. on top, broil it. Yeah. Um, get it nice and bubbly and crunchy. And then, you, you know, it's up to you whether you want to burn the roof of your mouth or not. You then need to make a decision, an edu- educated adult decision on when you want to dive into the soup. I always burn the roof of my mouth. So, you know, again, you do you. Is there a Hungarian version of soup to onion? Not that I know of. Do you know of one? No, but I oh, thought okay. I'd ask. No, I don't, but I thought I'd yeah. ask you. No, and the same thing with, like, Italian. I, I don't think there's really an Italian version of it either um, that I know of. Um, I mentioned in the intro that your pod, you've got a podcast, Food Adventures. What's the podcast about for our listeners? It's just, it's, I was, in, during 2020, here in the U.S., there was an administration before the one that's now currently in place, and I won't get political on you, but it was a dumpster fire here in the U.S., and, um, It was really sad and we were filled with a lot of fear. And so being someone who loves food and I love just people in general and learning about cultures and differences and how we're really kind of all the same, the the podcast is really about uniting one of all all of us together and, and experiencing that, you know, joining maybe through the lens of food. If we can come together there and see that we're all really the same then, you know, maybe we can come together in other places where we might have some differences. But really, if we lead with kindness, we're we're doing a heck of a lot better. I will put the link for the podcast and all of your details in the show notes for this episode. The final question I have for you is one that I ask everybody on Fabulously Delicious, and that is to you, what is the most fabulous thing about France? You, that you're in France and I want to come visit you. That's just the most fabulous thing about France. And if no one said that, then shame on them. And that's my answer and I'm sticking to it. Nobody has said that. Thank you so much, Beth Fuller, for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. It has been a wonderful chat about the soup tongue I've learned things, you've learned things, and our audience has learned things, and that's what it's all about. I can't wait for you to come and visit me here in France, maybe when I've got my cooking classes all set up and I need somebody, to, yes, definitely to come and do uh, some food photography for a cookbook. So thank you, Beth Fuller, for talking to us on Fabulously delicious today Yay! thank you for having me thank you all i appreciate it merci beaucoup merci beaucoup merci beaucoup merci beaucoup merci beaucoup merci beaucoup hi i'm emma and i'm joe and, and we're, we're the, the professional, professional book, book nerds. nerds two mondays a month we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books what drives them and their go-to order at the cafe On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!